0: Learning Minnesota, connecting people one conversation at a time. Today, Steph and I are excited to welcome our guest, Carrie Yates. Carrie is a Minnesota educator, author, speaker, and coach with a passion for helping busy literacy educators thrive. Our topic today is reading preparation, four or five powerful practices for any age or content area. Carrie, you know what? Let's talk. So we're so excited to have you here today, Carrie. We just thought we should start with, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, first, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. This is such a fun opportunity uh, to support this, uh, this Minnesota endeavor. And, uh, yeah, you know, I sometimes laugh. People might think I have a hard time holding a job down. I've done lots of different things in this world of education, from classroom teacher to reading recovery, special education, um, and um, principalship, district leadership. But the thing that always um, is just a passion that I keep driving toward is this idea of connecting, connecting kids to books and supporting educators in just really um, finding ways to do that and uh, coming to see the power of that, that really practical, um, let's get kids connected with books. So let's talk about that here today.
0: Yes, and I'm really excited. Uh, you have five powerful practices. And I think what's great about that is sometimes we have so much content and so many things coming at us as educators. And sometimes it's really nice to just take that, um, br- that look of what are some things that we can do really well and feel good about. So I'm really excited for you to jump in and talk about five powerful practices.
1: You know, uh, when I work with educators, I often, I often say that, you know, as we're stretching ourselves to learn and grow, um, and we enter into professional learning opportunities like, like the people who are tuning in are, hopefully a lot of what we get is affirmation for what we're already doing. Because teachers are so hardworking and they are already doing so many things and we we use fancy terms like evidence based practices. But uh, the five that I want to share with you today are really common sense and simple, but they are powerful practices that can really make a big difference. And what what I thought was fun about preparing for this. Is that because the audience is potentially a pre K twelve audience? I really pushed myself to think about practices that aren't just from my um, you know my niche is sort of elementary and early childhood, but that these are practices for any educator, um, any grade, and really any content area that I'm going to share. So, um, so the first yeah. So the That's first thing really I want to share. I'm
0: sorry. Well, it's really exciting, and um, I think two something that just resonated with me is as you dive into our practice I sometimes think we start understanding that content grade level content um, can be specific to uh, a grade level or a band but good practices so many of them uh, can really be adapted and modeled you know really birth through 12th grade and on so that is really exciting and that resonated with me so thank you for, for sharing that
1: so the, so the first one I want to share is, I mean, it might seem obvious, it might seem common sense, but I call it bushels of books. And kids need to be surrounded by books. And whether this is at home or at school, the more kids are surrounded by books, research shows, the more likely they are to engage with them. And um, so planting books everywhere, if it's at home, you know, encouraging families to just remember that. Boy, books in the car, in the kitchen, in the bathroom, books at hand, Um, and also for kids to see um, books just have so many, um, there are so many ways that books enhance our lives. And even as I say, bushels of books, because I like the alliteration of it, it's really about text, right? And texts of all kinds. So magazines, newspapers, books, um, things to be read. Uh, when we surround ourselves and our kids with them and then we kind of just keep saying, oh, wow, yeah, let's, let's see if we can find a book about that. Let's check out a book to support this. And so bushels of books kind of paired with this idea of um, learning to say to yourself and kids, hey, I bet there's a book for that. I bet we could read about that or let's see what we could find and whether it's finding text electronically or actually books in our hand kind of books um, this idea of um, making sure that texts are just a part of our lives that kids are um, are seeing us value in so many different ways.
0: Now if that kind of comes to mind what are your thoughts about graphic novels you know when you're talking about bushels of books you know, are you really trying to kind of um, create the idea of that all all print is good?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're you're hitting on a question that I think's on the mind of lots of teachers.
0: That's why I asked it. <laughs>
1: yeah, and you know, the thing about graphic novels is sometimes. Uh, so, I guess my belief about this is that. If kids are hooked on graphic novels, and they're doing lots of reading, I'd rather see an engaged reader who might, you know, it might look from the outside, like they're sort of stuck in a rut, or that's all they read. But sometimes, well meaning adults who kind of try to, yep, enough of that now steer kids away to something else. Sometimes we can actually kind of lose engagement. And so I'd rather see a kid read almost anything than not read at all. But I do think there are lots of ways we can help to navigate that, kind of think about that reading diet. Um, and um, so I, I'm a believer that we've got to get kids hooked on reading first. And then once they're hooked on reading, then we can navigate and fine tune and also by bringing them in and, you know, asking them to do some, some thinking about what else they might like to um, explore. I find uh, with so many kids, a um, a, kids who love graphic novels, what we, what we know about them is um, the the visual piece really pulls kids in. Um, They feel themselves make some um, quick progress, uh, but, Graphic novels shouldn't be poo-pooed as like not having lots to think about. There's, there's deep storyline and there's lots of room for deep thought with graphic novels. But a good pairing with them that I often find is um, informational text. And we live in a time of uh, children's, well, just what's available and being um, published for children's for children these days is pretty amazing. And highly visual informational text can be a really nice partner or balance with graphic novel because you can get kids hooked into it in some of those same ways. But the other thing publishers are doing is lots of what I would call sort of um, uh, blended where it's graphic novel with a little more um, traditional text embedded as well. So kids start to build some more Um, stamina and comfort with with reading bigger chunks of text so um, I guess that's my thinking.
0: (laughs) Yeah you know it's kind of like when you think about like that balanced diet or balanced literacy um, really trying to look at getting kids first engaged by matching the books to the readers and then um, introducing them to maybe some other things that will resonate with them so and that's really powerful, I think, and let, choice is so powerful for adults and children and students. So that's, um, I think, a really balanced approach to looking at what you're um, giving your students to engage and digest and, and begin um, learning that love of reading.
1: So um, you told me I could bring some books along, and uh, so this is a text that I wrote with my partner Christina Nozick, and she's a fifth grade teacher in Palo Alto, California. And uh, this text, Know and Nurture a Reader, is all about conferring with readers. And so really the the text is about it's help. you know it's we wrote this text to support teachers in thinking how do you navigate that one-on-one conversation with kids about what they're reading? And and Um, Although a reading conference can go any direction, we kind of have, we we help teachers kind of think about four areas of a reading life, and the first of them is book choice, and we offer an essential question for each of them, and our essential question for book choice is this, is the reader consistently finding his or her way to books that lead to high levels of engagement? And really, that engagement factor first, right? Mm -hmm. Because if kids are engaged, we can then all sorts of there's all sorts of possibilities. But if kids aren't engaged and they're like, I can't find anything to read. There's nothing. I don't want to read. There's nothing good. Then, then we don't have a platform to do the rest of the work. So, uh, engagement first.
2: I love that. I love I'm gonna jump in um, because I have a question as you were talking about immersing um, yourself or having books and titles everywhere for kids and, and working with the guardians and the families in helping them to have books in their car mm-hmm. and in their home, like you had said. Um, what what is what are some ideas that you can share with the classroom teachers for how to empower um guardians into collecting those? Or how do you work through some families not being able to have the resources to be able to obtain books? What are some ways that you can still get those texts out to in the hands of those kiddos once they leave the school building? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. So, you know, um, I think first, so a few things come to mind. And on my website, which is CarrieYates.com, there are a number of free downloadables there. And one of them specifically is called, um, I think it's called 21 Ways to Grow Your Classroom Library Without Emptying Your Own Pocketbook. And it has just a wealth of, you know, teachers are always trying to build their own classroom collection. I sometimes say I'm not sure why why this is the science teachers aren't out at the garage sale trying to find test tubes but um, <laughs> but reading teachers are there trying to find books and good for them and so that tool is just it's got all kinds of ideas about how classroom teachers can just keep feeding their own classroom libraries to make sure that they have these rich high volume classroom libraries and so my first tip for Um, parent and kid access is the simple tip of generosity and that when we're growing readers, the more we can push our, push ourselves as educators to always err on the side of trust and generosity and sending lots of books out into the world. Um, You know, one of the tips in that tool, I think, is open your cupboard doors and your closets and really, you know, shake and see what falls out because we all have books hidden away in the corners of our lives. And I say books were really meant to be matched with kids. So they'd rather, be, they'd rather be getting mucked up in the hands of a kid than safely protected behind a cupboard door. But the other thing is to really help kids understand how they can access books. So something else that comes to mind is we live in this amazing world of little libraries. And little libraries are all over, and to make sure kids and families know about them and and really know they like it's really real. You can just go there and take a book. This is amazing. Um, and then, of course, access to public libraries, but but that can be tricky for families as well, right? There's there's transportation involved and that that sort of thing. Um, so those are some ideas that come to mind. Some kids have access to technology, and there are also, um, you know, lots of ways families can access, access electronic texts if they have the technology. But uh, I, I think um, the most important thing we can do for kids is really empower them to know that they are in charge of their reading lives. and that that this is something they can pursue for themselves and that there are options in the world which which kind of leads me to um the practice number two that i want to highlight which is read aloud and read aloud i think and i want to be careful i was recently in a conversation where somebody thought the term read aloud kind of meant kids taking turns reading aloud. But when I say read aloud, I'm, I'm referring to the practice of an adult or a a really um, confident um, reader sharing a text with others. And so I'm really thinking about a teacher or parent reading aloud to, um, to kids and there are so many reasons to read aloud and I don't think it's news to anybody that this is a this is a powerful practice but the thing I think of first and foremost with read aloud it is really this um it is an advertisement for what reading is and can be so first and foremost when we read aloud to kids it's like this giant billboard for like hey you can become a reader And when you do, these are the sorts of ways your life can, you know, that you can make your own life more wonderful because you can access texts like this. And then when we read aloud, if we're just uh, really thoughtful about making sure we read like a wide variety of things, because it's part of hooking readers in it's, we want every kid to have this opportunity to, see their own interests, see themselves reflected in that read aloud. And so it really becomes this way to draw kids in and look, learning to read is hard, hard work. And why in the world would you want to do that unless you could see there was like a really great reason or, you know, this, to me, that's the motivation for learning to read is that you see what is possible when you become a reader. So that's my second one is to read aloud. And I want to encourage every teacher, like high school science teacher, on down to preschool teacher, everybody to read aloud um, to kids beyond being an advertisement for a reading life. Read aloud is also this, it's, it's when you say to kids, hey, Let me just carry the load on reading this text so you can have complete access to the content and the thinking. You can just free up all your brain space to think deeply about this text or to just, you know, be part of the emotional experience that comes with um, hearing this text. And so, um, so, and read aloud, I mean, it, it, It can be, I think sometimes people are like, oh yeah, like read aloud a chapter book, chapter by chapter, day after day. And that's one way a read aloud can look. But it can look like a poem or an informational article or a picture book in the high school science classroom. Um, It can look like anything. Um, But again, it's this chance to, really highlight reading and also the power of read aloud is it just uh, it brings you together as a community of learners Um, it's it's your chance to kind of have this common experience as a group that you can draw on and build on in other ways
0: Yeah, you know, I was kind of thinking about um, what you were saying about when we were matching books to kids, and they may, you know, the first step is engagement. So you want them to just pick uh, books that engage them. But with read alouds, I feel like that's how we can um, create a larger access Mm -hmm. and find different entry points for them to experience different genres Mm -hmm. or um, to experience new cultures or to really work on some of the um, different. Uh, different things that we want them to be exposed to, and I don't know—is it kind of like it's almost like an advertisement or a commercial, or a like, "Hey, did you know about this?" And then they may explore new, new books other than the ones they have been reading.
1: Absolutely, Mindy. And um, you know, you might read whole books aloud, but the other read aloud strategy is to just read excerpts, right? And Um, to read first in a series or first chapter of a book just like wow if anybody wants to continue with this one here it is um, as a way to to draw kids in and get them matched with books
0: yeah I love that like even reading a portion of a book together and leaving it a a cliffhanger and saying oh I hope you know hope you get a chance to read the rest you know it's actually kind of that hook to say you know this is this is an exciting book I hope you'll take it on um, and I just love, too, that you're adding in pieces of, you know, read-alouds are not not for just preschool or primary. Mm-hmm. That read-aloud has a place throughout our educational experience. And mm-hmm. it just gives us such a great access to just a huge variety of different types of reading. Like mm-hmm. you said, poetry, um, technical reading, so many different things that can be um just kind of given to uh, our students in little sound bites almost and get them excited about it.
1: We have an amazing, um, we have an eighth grade language arts teacher in our district and he really has a knack for um, using literature of all kinds but he does an elephant and he uses elephant and piggy with his eighth graders to do a character study to enhance a character study and i just think it's a it's such an example right of reading elephant and piggy aloud to um to eighth graders um
2: yeah so read aloud and i'm gonna jump in as well um so in talking about that read alouds are not just for the younger kiddos but they should be done all throughout all grade levels and all subject areas. Um, In the classroom I remember it was a you should choose a book that is approximately one level ahead of the readability of your own students. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard that but that was something that I just remember I was sometimes nervous to pull out a picture book for my third graders because Here I was supposed to choose something that was, and and I guess the picture books themselves were not as um, complex of text, but here I felt Mm -hmm. like I was more forced to choose chapter books and to choose books that were of a higher level where Mm -hmm. I maybe should have allowed myself more of that broad um, opportunity to pick and pull from whatever maybe tied into the theme or, or whatever I was feeling.
1: You know, so, so I gave an example of a really simple text, right? It's a, it's a, it's a definitely a first grade readability, but I think with any read aloud, it's what's the purpose. And this is, um, it's what's the purpose. And, and I, I think, so the recommendation is typically that read aloud is a chance to access more complex text. And and I think that's a, that's a strong recommendation because this is this is everybody's opportunity to have access to um, um, more complex vocabulary and just more complex ideas and yet um, i think i think it's this mix of being thoughtful right And and thinking about the whole range i don't think The example I give, this isn't what he's typically reading aloud, but it is an example of how reading aloud can be this, can open, I think picture books can open all sorts of um, possibilities for readers. And there is a study that I cite sometimes, and I can't, I won't be able to name it right now, but the gist of it is this, that the average children's picture book uses language more complex than the average conversation between two college-educated adults. And so this is just like, um, oh, you want to expose kids to rich vocabulary? Check out picture books. And in fact, sometimes those early chapter books, I think of like Junie B. Jones or some things that kids are excited and interested in, it It might be a great starting point for a read-aloud to read a little bit of that or even read a, an excerpt. But if that's the only thing we're reading aloud to our kids, then we're probably missing opportunities for more rich content and vocabulary. So I just think it's a, it's, it's to find that right mix. Again,
0: you kind of go back to that balance and intentionality and knowing why you're doing something. Yeah. Um, and then when you have that in the forefront, then I feel like the, uh, your choices just become so much larger, and you're not inhibited by reading one sort of book. That you can really be creative and play and find some really unique ways to use so just diverse um, genres and and types of literature. Yeah, for sure, that's really exciting. I really, uh, I think it's nice too to uh, to give. I think middle school and, and high school teachers permission that it's okay to let your students listen to some good literature. And I liked Carrie when you said, they don't have to worry about um, anything else but to dive deep and think about what they're listening to and, and, and hearing and, and really working on some of those more complex strategies that we want them to know when they leave um, leave our schools.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, you know, elephant and piggy is maybe an example of sometimes we use simpler text when we're going to do more complex content, right? And sometimes we use more content. uh, If we're going to use more complex content, it's helpful if kids have had some exposure to the, um, the tasks. So like you say, it's, it's, it's this balance. I'm actually
0: really excited for the next one. The next one
1: is Read It Again.
0: (laughs) You know, I was thinking
1: about Read It Again, and I just thought we call this I mean, there are lots of different ways we do this in our classrooms already. So, if you're that teacher listening and you're an elementary teacher and you're doing shared reading, um, you're already doing some Read It Again. And I think Read It Again is just this idea that um, it's really powerful. There can be so much good that comes out of revisiting texts and reading them again. And that comes in the form sometimes of shared reading in the elementary school. Oftentimes in elementary, we are asking kids to do repeated reading of texts. We're trying to build toward fluency, that sort of thing. But, um, But also, in the upper grades i mean sometimes in the lower grades too the, the term close reading with the common core standards is sort of this big buzzword of going back in and you know multiple times deeper layers each time the idea of close reading is this idea of read it again because with any text from elephant and piggy on to the most you know Uh, most complex novel, there are all these layers that are built in, right? There are layers built into the text. There are layers built into the illustrations. And so there's meat to go back in and better understand through rereading. But it turns out, especially with our youngest readers who are just Really, in those early years of becoming readers, there's a lot of benefit to the brain as well, in terms of having multiple opportunities to revisit, and this whole idea of getting that orthographic mapping happening in the brain, where we're really um, the brain is really making those connections between sounds and letters and um, recognizing patterns and this. Uh, this is what helps to support instant word recognition eventually. And so, read it again is, I think it's just a good challenge for all of us to remember. uh, Many texts weren't built to be read just one time, and and so encouraging kids and even finding authentic reasons to go back in and read it again. I think of some of the work of Timothy Rosinski, which is, really focused on fluency and finding authentic reasons to have kids do multiple readings, whether it's um, you know preparing a text to read with a reading buddy or preparing a, a poem to share with the class or just really going back into a complex article to understand um, uh, those additional layers of what the author is trying to communicate. So, um, so, yeah, texts aren't aren't meant to be read just once. If we can, if we can. Uh, well, you think about in, it.
0: We even as adults, have our favorite stories or our books that we have read, you know, over again, and then that we in turn share with our children, even. And I think it's that power of being able to relate to something, but then um, finding this more robust meaning with inside. Um, the text as well. And if you just read it once, you you can miss some of those little, little but powerful um, pieces of literature. And I think too, I remember when I, <laughs> I always date myself on, on these conversations, I got to stop doing that. But I remember when I first started teaching, there was kind of this, um, no, you can't have that book in your library, because they do that in this grade level. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's ours. <laughs> yes. I, know, I know, and I don't even wanna say that, but, and I'm so glad that we've moved away from that because mm-hmm. no, it's okay. We can have it in multiple um, grade levels and we can even, just because I'm reading as a read aloud, you can too because your mm-hmm. approach and how you read it and the things that are important to you and resonate with you um, change. And I think when we model that for students, We're also showing that, hey, you know what, that favorite book, you can read it again.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I have some books. I have a few books that I often use with other adults that I have read like so many times. This is a silly little example, but there is this book called um, Mrs. Spitzer's Garden. And this is a, it's the tale of a kindergarten teacher who is opening up her classroom for the year and then plants the seeds and they grow and then she closes it down and and the principal brings a packet of seeds for the next year. And it's just, it's a simple little story. I get so emotional every time I read that book. And I often share it with teachers in a, you know, before school starts or end of school year type of a setting. And every time I pick up that book, I think, yeah, I bet the magic is gone. Like, you know what, the first, the first few times I read this book is so powerful, but I think I'm probably over this book by now. And every time I read that book aloud to teachers, I get emotional every single time. That book is just an example of, a, I, don't, I probably will outgrow it at some point, but boy, it continues to be a good fit for me now. And it's way below my instructional reading level. Right? I can easily read all the words, but that I think goes back to your question stuff about complexity. I think that books, it, it, it has lots of layers of complexity in terms of the emotions of being an educator. And so complexity isn't just about you know, the, um, the, new, the numeric formula for the, um, the readability level, but the complexity of the topics as well. So,
2: I love read it again. <laughs> I love that too. Um, um, I uh, there's so many things that are swimming through my head right now. Just on the first three that we're talking about, I am curious as to as we are growing our libraries and getting books in the hands of the kids and. Um, reading aloud to them and encouraging families to read aloud to their kids, and then talking about close reading or reading it again and knowing that it's okay if next year that teacher plans to do that book as the read aloud because there are so many different layers that we can hit on. Um, Kind of back down to thinking about choosing the right books. And I know we talked about that the level um, you know, is, is something we have to be intentional with it. When we start to look at all of the new titles that are coming out and maybe start to reflect on what we currently have in our library, how do we maintain a library that fits our students? And that, like, how do we become more cognizant about choosing um, texts that are not biased in any ways, and checking our current library to make sure that, hey, maybe this particular title doesn't quite fit this time anymore, or do we keep those in there and celebrate that? I know that's a big argument that people say is whether or not books, some, some titles that were written um, in years past still should be in the classroom library and in the hands of students. So could you share a little bit more about your thoughts on that?
1: Um, that's a big, that's a, that's a, that's a big, big topic, Steph. I <laughs> it had is. The chance this fall to attend a day-long workshop on this topic, um, put on by School Library Journal. And, you know, in a nutshell, I think, yes, we all have to, we all have to really step up, um, because we are so hungry for books and you know when i talk about that downloadable 21 ways to grow your classroom library a lot of those ways to grow your classroom library might be dependent on people donating books you know books coming from a variety of sources and so i think the idea of continuing to build our own capacity to be discerning in the types of texts that we're choosing to put in front of our kids is really important and we do want i think you know the idea of um, the idea of doors and windows and mirrors that kids have texts that they really see themselves reflected in, and, and being being cognizant of that is no small task. But really making sure that the 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 humans who are depicted in the texts that we're sharing with our kids. That our kids are going to regularly see themselves, whether it's you know in terms of physical uh, features or in terms of family structures or just you know so many different things. So yeah, that's big work to educate ourselves in terms of what to even be looking for and thinking about, but really critically important work. Um, there was there a second part to your question.
2: Um, I guess I, I was just thinking about yeah. when there are when there are books, for example, that I had in my library yeah. and suddenly you, you don't know what you don't know and suddenly yeah. somebody says something or suddenly an article comes out that says this author or this book has, mm-hmm. you know, so then thinking about how often do you go through your own library and make yes. sure that the books are, that are there are good for kids and then as you're adding to, like you said, grab sales, donations, you know, any sort of way that you can ta- grab titles. They're usually older books. Um, yeah. You know, so how do you, how do you yeah. make sure that you go through regularly and, and what do you look for in that sort of a yeah. thing? I, I think,
1: um, so I think building your, and boy, again, we could do a whole, we could do a whole session on this, but building your own comfort level in becoming becoming discerning and you're you're referring to you know maybe some recommendations by school library journal or the horn book lists or whatever were just even reading some recommendations like that i find that to be helpful because i'm like oh here's something i wouldn't have necessarily thought of myself um but i think some books from the past and um, I'm thinking of a text. Um, there was a story I loved as a kid, five Chinese brothers, and I don't know the author of this book, but, um, when I look at it now as an adult, I just think, oh my gosh, I, I was sort of excited to share this with my own kids because it was a story I loved. And then I realized this, this is not, um, this is just so, you know, the, the imagery is just so stereotypical and, and unhelpful. Part of it, I think, is also building our own comfort and capacity for having honest conversations with kids, because kids are going to come across things in your library that maybe they're going to um, question, or that you're going to all of a sudden see through new eyes. Because we're all growing into this all the time, right? I mean, hopefully, if we're if we're taking equity work seriously, then almost day by day, week by week, month by month, each of our own um, you know, our nuanced ability to to kind of think about this is maybe it is, it's is growing. So um, I think sometimes it also is developing. You know, in an age-appropriate way, the way to to be able to also have conversations with kids, if um, if there are things that that you know come up or don't feel like they are as, as yeah, as much of a match as you would hold.
0: And I think what is, um, I think the way we can grow through that too is that we don't have to shy away if there's something that comes up that is inappropriate. We truly can use that as a learning moment and get the discussion going with students on, you know, why does, why is this um, not where we're at in our understanding of um, where our, our culture is right now. Um, I think too, that is how people or students internalize how they see the world as well. They need to have some of those conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, yeah, it's great that we can go through our libraries and and make sure that they're as diverse and making sure that we are seeing people um, of color or of the makeup of our communities. Um, But I also think it's okay as teachers to be okay if you miss one and it comes up as a conversation because those are the moments too that, um, I don't know some of the greatest or the biggest learning moments can come out of what sometimes we may want to shy away from.
1: Mm -hmm. I think the other, the other thing that can be really powerful is just sitting as a group of adults and looking at some books together and talking about what do you see here, right? And, and, and who do, who do you see? And is there anything, worth talking about um in terms of um who is represented and how but i i the other thing is um dollars are always tight in schools um i i push wherever i go wherever i can talk about independent or classroom libraries i'm always pushing to get an actual line item on a budget for this, that it's not all hodgepodge together from garage sales and stuff such, but that books are actually the, they're the tool for reading teachers. Books are the stuff of the reading classroom. So we actually need to designate dollars for purchasing books uh, for our classroom collections. And in doing so, I think one of the things we can do relative to the conversation of diverse collections is make sure that when we have dollars to spend right now, that, that, we're, that we're really prioritizing this in terms of the text that we're purchasing. When, we, when we've got actual dollars, we want to be really careful, of course, about how we spend them and just knowing this is, this is an important priority for that. So
0: we're going on to number four, I have a feeling.
1: (laughs) We're going to number four. All right. So number four is text sets. And the idea of text sets is the it's it's maybe sort of like a cousin to read it again, but the idea of reading across a topic. And text sets can be as simple as pairing. You know, two texts, maybe a fiction and a nonfiction text on the same topic. You're studying frogs in second grade. You're going to read informational texts about frogs, but you might also um, you might also have some literature that um, has frogs. You're doing a um, study of you know the World War II. You're going to read some poetry and some biography and some informational text and maybe view some multimedia. Um, related to the topic, so text sets, the the beautiful thing about text sets is, um, it turns out that when kids have the chance to read across a topic, they're building vocabulary and background knowledge. They're building expertise on a topic. And the idea of, you know, reading level as related to texts has kind of almost popped up a few times in this conversation. But, you know, there's no absolute reading level for any kid. We can do all sorts of assessment, but there's no absolute reading level. We all know kids who, when they have that topic that they are expert on, you know, we have the dinosaur expert who might struggle with reading lots of text, but boy, put a dinosaur text in front of them and they can read. They can read every one of those dinosaur names. It's an example of having having read widely on a topic, um, deep on a topic, and an example of building that personal expertise and the power of background knowledge and vocabulary for being able to access more complex text on your own. And so this idea of texts that go together, what it kind of does is if you create, let's say, I mean, I'll use a simple um, first grade example, you're, you're studying forest animals, you put together a, a simple text set with um, that's all about forest animals, by reading a few simple texts on that topic, kids are then able to read more complex texts on that topic because they start to develop. Um, expertise background knowledge and vocabulary and so text sets is a it's a broad recommendation everything from you know two texts that go together to just thinking of like a whole basket of books on a topic which brings us right back to classroom library and if there's anything you take out of this and you're somebody who has lots of books in your classroom, the more we can organize those books in some meaningful way for kids, not by reading level, but by um, some other meaningful real world way, the more we will help them as readers. And so when we create a text set that is about forest animals or about World War II, or a text set that is all elephant and piggy, what we're doing is we're setting kids up to think strategically about what interest them, and then access multiple texts potentially on that topic by that author um, in that genre. And so, again, text sets is sort of a broad recommendation, but if we're trying to hook readers one book at a time is exhausting, and, but when we can get them, if we can think more um, text collections, it's, it's a win in terms of keeping readers hooked as well.
0: And I really think that there's such a wide variety of purposes that you could engage with, um, with creating text sets. You know, I just think of even that compare and contrast when you're looking at like the fairy tale frogs Mm -hmm. and then the informational text frogs and even um, exploring, um, you know, just like, again, comparing the difference between a fairy tale frog and a, And a real frog and just so many moments that um, we can take to, um, I don't know, just take those deeper dives for kids to have a more robust understanding of different topics. For sure. Really? um, Yeah. I really think that's um, one of the benefits of text sets.
1: I think the Um, other, the other thing um, in the upper grades is uh, tackling a topic multiple texts on a same topic and being able to explore multiple points of view
0: mm.
1: um, you know just how different authors have tackled the same topic or even across informational texts thinking about how informa- how the same information is um, portrayed in different ways there's just I think that whole text-to-text connection and that deep critical thinking about, uh, you know, the idea that every author has a point of view that they're bringing to whatever the topic is and that learning to study the craft of a text gives you clues about that author's point of view. And so if you're looking at five informational texts all about frogs, you're actually going to get a lot of insight into how different authors tackle teaching about frogs Mm -hmm. or about World War II, or about whatever it is, right, about global warming.
0: You really can take any topic, I think, and really um, take that, take a tech set and do um, so many things with. I really like that one as well. I also think that these are just so, I'm thinking about new teachers and um, where to get started, and I'm just so appreciative of our conversation today because I really do feel like um, this kind of gives teachers that place to kind of begin and start thinking about their practice and where they can kind of hone in. And so I think we're already on practice five. I can't believe it always goes so fast when we talk with you, Carrie. And I feel like we're just glued to you because you have so many great ideas and suggestions for us. Um, So yeah, let's go on to practice five.
1: Practice five is my absolute favorite and probably because it draws from elements of all of the others, but practice five is passion projects. And this is simply the idea that, We've got to ask kids what matters to them and then set them up to do some deep, like deep exploration of um, topics that they feel really passionate about. And so when I say passion projects, I'm thinking about inquiry and student design text sets, basically. The idea of if dinosaurs are my thing, I'm going to collect a whole bunch of books about dinosaurs and I'm going to read really work to get my questions answered, to grow my own expertise. And the thing I love about this is it leads to such authentic reader response. And I use air quotes on reader response because I think that can mean a lot of different things to different people, but the most authentic reader response any of us engage in is we read something and then we kind of ask ourselves, like, so, so what does that mean? What next? And sometimes when we read, we decide we're gonna do something, like we're gonna take action. Sometimes we decide we're gonna make something or teach somebody about it, we're gonna read or we're gonna we're gonna write or we're gonna make something. Sometimes I'm reading and I'm making like a, a slideshow or something so I can teach some somebody about what I did. Um, and sometimes what we decide to do as readers as a result of reading is we decide we're going to read more. We've got to find more on this topic, we've got to go deeper, or we're going to take a bird walk because something in one book kind of got us thinking about another. So the idea of Passion Projects is really this idea of build helping encouraging kids to build personal expertise on topics that matter to them. And this could be in the kindergarten classroom that, as part of that independent reading. Kids are thinking about topics that matter to them, and and if they are frog crazy, that they're collecting some books on frogs so that they can sort of have that personal text set. Um, and as kids go up the grades, the idea that they can be using diverse sources, whether it's electronic sources or the, you know, the school library or the public library to find texts on the topics that really matter to them and grow that personal expertise.
0: So I'm just thinking now, that would be also with favorite authors, like their collection oh, on the same author as well.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: I think this, um, in, in Minnesota, we've been thinking about these evidence-based practices for literacy and and one that, uh, is I think so much on the hearts and minds of teachers a lot is motivation and engagement and how do we keep kids really motivated and engaged. And to me, passion projects are about um, giving kids choice and voice about what they're going to pursue. We want them to be reading deeply and thinking about what to do, but it's kind of um, really um, nudging them to name some things that they really care about and want to dig into and, and pursue. Whether it's following a train, like you said, of, uh, of a favorite author, or maybe it's reading every book in a series, or it's pursuing a particular genre. But also, I really think a lot here about um, informational text and the idea of kids You know, really, uh, really learning how to navigate informational text and those um, uh, multiple texts on on a topic, Mm. Uh, looking for those chances to do, um, compare, contrast, but that deep synthesis work of really thinking, oh, yeah, what am I learning on this topic? from all these different sources that matches up or that doesn't match up and what does that mean um, in terms of what I decide um, as a consumer of information.
0: Well, it's been, I just feel like we've gotten so many amazing um, ideas and thoughts going today and just to kind of review the five different practices that we talked about today, let's see if we can Go back and just kind of review those so everyone can um, kind of think about uh, as we're closing what uh, what they were. So the first one um, I think is a really, really important one, um, and that's just getting as many books out there as we can for readers. I love the alliteration of bushels of books and just get books into kids' hands.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that was a really good one. Yeah.
1: And then I want to nudge everybody a little bit on each of these. And on that one, it's just like figure out where your next books are coming from. And um, I'm not meaning to just uh, hammer that download, but I did think of it as we were talking. And if you're thinking, I don't have a penny to spend on books, really stretch yourself about how you can get books coming in on a regular basis. Families are excited to share them with you, you know, to pass along gently used books. Um, There's all sorts of ways to do that.
0: Yeah. And then our practice number two, the read-alouds and giving us permission mm-hmm. to really um, read a, just a, a ton of different um, types of literature and, and giving us permission to really use it in many different ways. And uh, one thing that I'm just really resonates with me is giving kids the opportunity to dive deep into something that all they have to think about is what they're listening to. I
1: think then the thing I want to say about read aloud is never ever apologize for taking time to read aloud to kids at any age. Don't ever let yourself feel like this is not teaching or not good use of time. Um, never apologize for time spent reading aloud. It's, it's gonna have huge benefits for kids.
0: Well, then no, we went on to practice three, read it again. And I find that so powerful too because Um, Every time, it's like an onion. Every time you go in there, it's another layer and um, you find a new favorite spot in the book or um, just so many things that you can do when you're reading things again. I love that, Mindy. I'm going to rename
1: it the onion strategy. And um, I just, I want to just, you know, we live in a fast-paced world. And this one is really about um, taking time to slow down and realize there's real benefit in going back. Digging back into a text.
0: Then we have practice four um, text sets, and this Mm -hmm. one I just I love the uh, giving uh, giving over empowering students to create their own text Mm -hmm. sets Um, is amazing. But that's number five. See, I'm mixing them. Um, But two are really related. And the thing,
1: the Mm -hmm. the tip I actually want to give about text sets is this: ask your kids. um, Ask your kids. Uh, like if you use baskets for organizing your classroom library, like what kind of basket do you wish we had here? And when they say, I really wish we had a basket, that was about, you know, dolphins. (sighs) Um, Chances are you probably have a couple books in that library you already can pull into that basket. But now you can um, set the wheels in motion for kids to see you respond to that. And so I think that, and that kind of ties into the next one of just honoring kids um, through passion projects and, and listening to what matters to them.
0: Yeah, I did
1: highlight about passion projects is it's such a great beginning or end of the year, any time of year, really, but it's really a window into what matters to kids. And when you say, what matters to you that you would really like to explore? You are just saying, "I value you, and I want to support you in pursuing what matters to you."
0: You that you said that so well, and I was just—I think this might be my new favorite um, one with practice five because it just has so many. Um, so many pieces I feel like for mm-hmm. for students to engage in and feel empowered by, um, and really taking responsibility of their own learning. So I just really appreciate that one, and um, I think that's you know, one, that my, um,
1: one of my exposures to that one was as actually a recommendation for for really striving readers, and that this is such a powerful way to engage striving readers is to say. I wanna help you build a collection of books on a topic that just so matters to you. Again, it goes back to that motivation piece.
0: Yeah, definitely. So um, one last question that I think that I really um, would like to kind of just uh, wrap our heads around a little bit are what are some of the things or the quick wins or the um, resources to check out for teachers when they're thinking about implementing these strategies in their classroom?
1: Well, I'm going to shamelessly plug a resource of my own right now. How about that, Mindy?
0: <laughs> awesome. do. Uh, those uh, that are listening right now, Carrie has done some amazing work. And um, definitely, please check out um, the resources that she has available to you. Um, I think you're really going to find them helpful in as you're working on your practice in your classroom. I think
1: one of the things... Um, My blog, uh, karyates.com, is really dedicated to designing the kinds of classrooms that will allow you to follow the lead of kids while also implementing really strong research-based practices in literacy. And there are a lot of free resources there. I also, I wanna highlight, this is a text that I wrote a number of years ago. It's called Simple Starts, Making the Move to a Reader-Centered Classroom. And this text is really filled with ideas that support a lot of what we talked about today, especially bush—I'm sorry—bushels of books, um, the read aloud, and then just really organizing um, text sets. It's—it's it's about keeping strong independent reading practices going with kids um, within the classroom. And this text also has a free. Um, It has the all of the appendices for that text are free online on the Heinemann site and there are several resources there for helping build classroom libraries and so forth as well. So that's another, it's another free resource.
0: And I think too, um, you know, when we're looking at the different um, quick wins, uh, I, one thing I like about these strategies is I think um, they all give us this mindset. Um, and they really do kind of um, give us a commonality. So, as a community of learners and a community of educators that are implementing this at the building level, do you see, Carrie, when you're working with um, in your district, that it, it causes those common conversations and you can build off them as well? Yeah, I think, you know, these five
1: practices that I shared tonight, they, again, they are. You know, most of them are almost like common sense practices. I mean, they're not fancy practices, and they're simple things anybody can do. But the idea, I think you're getting at, Mindy, of naming a practice, whether it's read aloud or whether it's really committing to this read again strategy, when you commit to a practice publicly, whether it's with a partner, or part of a PLC, or like part of a whole school initiative, that idea of we're going to go together and really see what we can do with this just takes it from a pretty powerful practice to the next level, um, because you've got that partnership and that, like you said, that sense of community that l- let's see what we can do with this um, together. And educators are I, second to none in terms of knowing how to support each other and share great ideas and just take a good idea and make it better by, um, through collaboration and conversation.
0: Absolutely, that's amazing. I want to just kind of make sure that we are also letting people know some of the other um, amazing things that you're working on. So you showed us um, simple starts, correct? I did. And we'll have that linked on um, on yeah. on our resource sheet for everyone. Mm-hmm. And um, you um, have conferring with readers.
1: Yeah, I we yeah. um, To know and nurture a reader, uh, conferring with confidence and joy. And then I was also going to share this yeah, resource.
0: That's the one I wanted you to share.
1: Yeah. Um, So this is called Conferring with Readers, and it's from NCTE, and it's part of their series called Quick Reference Guides, and the way this is set up, it's just like a a tri-fold, so basically six pages, you know, front and back. And it's three-hole punch, so you could drop it in a binder. And I think this is a brilliant series that NCT has done. They have dozens of these. This is just one of them. I just think the concept is brilliant because it's very visual and iconic. And it's, it's just meant for really busy educators who want to get to the heart of a practice and um, kind of learn the, the, the nitty-gritty of it without reading the full book. Um, because everybody's so busy and so I, I really would recommend check these out from NCTE. They're everything from SEL to reading, um, reading topics, just lots of different topics and so um, uh, check, check that
0: out. Yeah we just, the, all those links will be on, our, on your resource page so please check those out as well. And again, we just want to say thank you so much, Carrie. Again, we just learned so much when we're with you. And we're just so grateful um, that we have that connection with you. So if others want to create a connection with you, how can they get a hold of you?
1: Um, I am on Twitter at Carrie underscore Yates. I do have my website. You can contact me there. There's a contact page there. Um, You can email me also at carrie at simplyinspiredteaching.com. And I'd love to connect. I love connecting with educators and doing problem solving, uh, idea sharing, just brainstorming about how we can keep taking that next step on behalf of kids. And so what I want to wish all of your readers is just uh, brave journey and to just keep finding the energy and the courage to stretch yourself into that next step.
0: Thank you. Thanks for, thanks so much for taking the time to join our Learning Minnesota discussion with Carrie Yates on the topic of reading preparation, five powerful practices for any age or content area. Don't forget to visit our site learningminnesota.com for additional resources on this to- particular topic and more videos in our research library.